This is episode 13 of People Doing Physics, the podcast from the Cavendish Laboratory at the University of Cambridge. This month marks our first birthday, one year, 12 guests, each one looking into their very own journey in connection with physics. I'm Jacob Butler from the Outreach Office. And I'm Vanessa Business, uh, the Laboratory's Communications Manager. For this special birthday episode, we've asked the head of the Cavendish Laboratory, Professor Andy Barker, to take us to a building site. Not any building site, though, the one just across the road from the department's current location, where the new Cavendish Laboratory will open in 2024. A professor of high-energy physics, Andy joined the Cavendish as a lecturer in 1989. He served as deputy head of department for three years before becoming the head in 2013. Who better than Andy, then, who has overseen this immense project for the best part of the past 10 years, to show us around and talk about what the new building means for the future of physics in Cambridge and nationally. With him, we wander, we roam and we talk about particle physics, ever bigger underground tunnels and a lost spring on the carpet. Stay with us. It's a bright and brisky Tuesday morning and I'm standing at the entrance of the Ray Dolby Centre with uh, Chris Brock, our um, technician. We're waiting for Professor Andy Parker to join us um, and take us on a tour of the new building. Hi, I'm Andy Parker. I'm the head of the Cavendish Laboratory. So we're walking around a sweeping curved corridor that comes into the, the library. Well, the Learning Resources Centre. Um, um, on our left here we've got the, the seminar room. So this is a... That's a small one, the small yes. one. There will be two, huh? the big one and the... No, there's the small lecture theatre ah. and the large lecture theatre. Yeah. There are lots of seminar rooms. This one is special because it's designed that uh, it will have tables with seats around the tables on three sides. So everybody can sit and face the lecturer at the front, but they can also group work around together. the table for group working. It's called a cluster seminar room, so they work in little clusters. Can we get into the library area? Squeeze through a window. Squeeze through a window. <laughs> so this huge is, window is going This is going to be a lovely space because there's windows at the end. On the facade where the sun comes in, the windows have been angled to face north. So there's the northern light comes in rather than direct sunlight. And today we can see you can see it working because the sun is there. It's coming round towards uh, towards the south. And if I stand and face the sun, it's just cut off by the by the columns. But the space is full of light. Yeah. And above us is the frame of the big lecture theatre. So that will be the Ray Dolby Auditorium, and it will be fitted with um, copper-coloured scales almost they look like scales or possibly a bit like a one of those diamond quilted um, quilts that you get so above the library there will be this this scaled pattern in gold which will reflect also the light, reflect on the light yeah. so here on the ground floor this is the first of the flying staircases that goes up to the second level and you can see the floor is open here 
and above us there will be skylights, so light will be coming down from above as well. Um, At the moment it's covered in, in scaffoldings, so yeah. there's not much we can see. But yeah. Yeah, so they're fitting fitting all the upper areas and then they'll take the scaffolding down once that's well, done. Well we can see glimpses of the of the scale, the, yes. the copper so scale. If we go up one floor yeah. we'll be able to see that. So people will come in actually on the floor above because the ground floor is solid laboratories. We're bringing visitors in on the first floor and then if you go to a laboratory you go downstairs, if you're going to a lecture theatre you go upstairs um, and if you're going to offices you can go naturally to the offices. Um, so we're actually at the bottom of the flying staircase that leads down to this area for the library. So while we were talking, we climbed some stairs to get on to the first floor? We are on, or the, on the second. We're on the first floor, but it felt more than that because we had it's to climb past the double height yeah. space where all the services are. Um, and now we're walking in. We're walking back into the public wing and we are going into the small lecture theatre. So we're actually hanging from the ceiling now above the reception desk. Uh, so this is a hundred seater. Doesn't look like a hundred seater, but it is. Yeah. Um, so this will be one of the principal teaching spaces and for seminars and so on. And as I say, it's directly above the reception desk. So people entering the building would walk underneath it up the stairs and into this. Um, it's very nice, compact lecture theatre. And uh, yeah, because it is, it is obviously the building that is welcoming our researchers, but also our students, and they are coming through the public, the public That's doors. Right. Yes. So, so they are very much part of our build, like our life and our the, the department. That's true. At the moment, students going to the lecture theatres would go in the back of the building naturally. This arrangement, the students will come in through the main door, the same as everyone else, past the reception desk, and they'll see in front of them the main lecture theatre directly in front of them, up one flight of stairs, the library directly in front of them, down one flight of stairs, and the small lecture theatre directly above them. And if they come up the staircase to this level, the next staircase takes you to the canteen where we have a south-facing balcony which looks out across the site. Um, so for them I think it will be much more pleasant. So you're today at the head of the Cavendish Laboratory, um, but before raising millions to make this quote-unquote new Cavendish a reality, you um, were doing some hand-on research. So right. let's try and find out a quiet space where you can tell us more about um, you and your journey into physics. I'm pleased to do so. So we've taken off our hard helmets and high-vis vests and we're now comfortably seated in a heated room. That's nice. Let's talk about physics. Um, what brought you to it exactly, Andy? And um, in our earlier conversation, I think we heard that uh, you as a kid were always dismantling things. Did I inspire you? <laughs> yeah, that's right. I was, uh, I was always fascinated by how things work and I would find tape recorders or clocks or whatever and take them to bits to see what was inside them. And I was very, very rarely successful in putting them back together again. But um, it was that sort of curiosity about how things work that led me into physics I think. You, you said also sorry you said also that you um, you were not very good at biology and 
chemistry and that physics <laughs> kind of came as the natural choice. Yes, I, I, I wasn't actually very good at putting things back together either. So um, as a particle physicist, I've carried on smashing things without attempting to put them back together. Uh, but indeed, I found biology completely impenetrable and chemistry has far too many long words and complicated elements to, um, to make sense to me. Uh, a universe with 92 elements did not seem natural and uh, so particle physics where you break things down is very reductionist you break things down and you find smaller and smaller sets of things seem, seem the way to go to me and uh, it's worked very well and so you went to Oxford to do your degree in physics where you discovered the world of CERN uh, could you tell us a little bit about uh, what you started working on there and for those listeners who might not be familiar with it could you just give us a quick overview of what CERN is as well sure so when I was at Oxford, they had, uh, like all universities, undergraduate projects. And the first one I did was uh, looking at some uh, film from a device called a bubble chamber, which had run at CERN. Um, and I found that absolutely fascinating. You could see the tracks of these subatomic particles. So CERN is the, uh, the world's now uh, major particle physics laboratory at the time. It was the, the European centre. There were a lot of others. Um, and it has large accelerators which accelerate particles to very high velocities and then they're collided with other other things other particles coming the other way usually these days um, and you study the collisions and what's uh, what's produced um, i think everybody's familiar with einstein's equation that says e equals mc squared uh, what that says is that energy can be transformed into mass and vice versa so the universe, it turns out, has lots of possible particles which are heavy, and so you need a lot of energy to make them. We don't see them in everyday life because they decay. Um, so what we're left with in the universe today is just the ones which have not decayed away. And all the heavy stuff that was around at the time of the Big Bang has vanished. But by putting a lot of energy in one place with an accelerator, colliding two particles together, you can remake these massive particles so we can see things that are... Um, are uh, invisible or just non-existent in the universe anywhere else. So CERN gives us that capability. Yeah, I've heard it described as recreating the conditions of the early Big Bang or just after the Big Bang. I forget exactly what fraction of a second we are up to now. But, uh, uh, we're, we're sort of below a, um, we're in a peak a second would be a reasonable, <laughs> reasonable thing. It's not quite true that it's recreating those conditions though because in the Big Bang everything was hot mm. and dense whereas at CERN it's only a tiny region for a tiny short period that we create those sort of conditions but nonetheless it does allow you to explore what happens at those extremes um, so universities from all over the world go there and there are large collaborative efforts to build detectors and, um, and study the collisions okay. and so how did you get started at CERN what was your first role there so after I graduated um, and before I started my PhD I went uh, as a summer student which are uh, it's not really a role, but they um, they take people at that career stage, and there's a summer school, and you get to work on an experiment with somebody, and you visit, you you spend up to two or three months there on site. So that was very nice. Uh, so you get to know the place a little bit, you get to see what real experimental work is like, um, and then I did my PhD at University College London, um, working on the neutrino collisions. So neutrinos are fascinating particles because they they really don't want to collide with anything. <laughs> you can stick a light year's worth of matter in front of a neutrino and it will most likely get through without hitting anything. Um, 
which means that in order to do experiments with them you need an enormous number to give yourself a chance that some of them will collide and uh, so we ran the experiment during my PhD for about two years uh, taking 10 to the 14 neutrinos every pulse uh, pulsing every 10 seconds and I had 300 collisions to work with <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, so that was uh, my PhD, and then um, after that I uh, got a job as a CERN fellow, which is a postdoctoral position, and then um, after a couple of years of that I was uh, appointed as a CERN staff member. Um, so I was at CERN in total for about seven and a half years. But then, so you joined the Cavendish in 89, mm -hmm. um, but you were active, remaining active at CERN. And you became involved in large groundbreaking projects for the Large Hadron Collider, the LHC, um, like the construction of the Atlas Inner Detector, I think? That's correct. <laughs> we were in the late 80s, early 90s then, and a lot of new technologies had to be developed to work alongside and support the detector. That must have been a thrilling period, but not very peaceful, was it? That's true, yes. I'd, um, so the the work for the collaborations uh, at CERN really only started in the late 80s and I was appointed to a lecturer, assistant lecturer at the Cavendish in 1989. Um, and when we sat down to think about the Large Hadron Collider, it was a much bigger machine than CERN had ever built before, much higher energy, it produces far more particles every time the beams collide. So the detectors have to survive this environment where many, many particles are hitting them, so they become radioactive. Uh, the uh, number of particles you have to detect is very high. The beams collide every 25 nanoseconds, so you uh, get a whole 25 nanoseconds to be ready for the next one. <laughs> um, and, and when we thought about it, we realized we had no detectors that could survive in that environment. We had no electronics that could work that fast. We had no way of transmitting the data off of the detectors. And if we did get the data off the detectors, we had no computers capable of, um, of absorbing it. So we sort of, being being young and foolish, we thought, well, we can solve all these challenges, <laughs> and we sat down to do the R&D, which took about 10 years. Um, and I worked on silicon sensors and uh, a lot of engineering for the detectors. And I was the project leader for the inner detector, which is the piece which is closest to the beam line, so it takes the biggest hammering from the particles. Uh, and it has the... The, the largest um, granularity we call it so it's it's like a pixel camera it's got a very large number of pixels because the particles as they emerge from the collision are very close together so it had to be simultaneously very fast radiation hard and um, and very granular and that was quite a challenge um, so after six years as project leader I signed off the technical design report and then it was left to more competent people to actually build the device. Uh, but I'm very pleased that it does actually did work and does work and is still working at CERN. Um, so it was, it's one of the principal subsystems of the Atlas detector. Atlas is the largest detector at CERN um, and it has a collaboration strength of about 3,000 physicists and engineers who, who work on it. Uh, and it was one of the detectors that discovered the famous Higgs boson in 2012. So you mentioned in an earlier chat that uh, on top of this 27-kilometre accelerator, the next generation one is being developed, and uh, that's supposed to be about 100 kilometres long. Uh, what are the differences are we hoping that this will make on experiments and research? Okay, so 
Um, the Large Hadron Collider has still got a long way to go. Um, it's, uh, it will be running into the 2030s and it's collecting more data uh, all the time. Um, so there may well be lots of discoveries to come from the Large Hadron Collider, but if you do these very large projects you need a long time to think about what you're going to do, how you're going to achieve it, and how to build the infrastructure. So CERN has thought about what the next generation would be, and again, going back to E equals MC squared, at some point you have to go higher in energy in order to make more massive particles or to study uh, processes at much higher energies, which is taking you again closer and closer to the moment of the Big Bang. Um, so CERN has started a feasibility study for what they call the future circular collider, uh, and this would be about six times the energy of the Large Hadron Collider. Um, and it needs a correspondingly larger tunnel, so uh, 100 kilometers is the baseline design. It will probably come out somewhere close to that. Um, the tunnel is actually the easy bit. Uh, there are civil engineers who know how to drill large tunnels through rock, and this, is, this would be about between 100 and 200 meters down in the, in the rock under Geneva and under neighboring parts of France. Um, but then you have to build an accelerator in it and that means having very very powerful magnets, superconducting magnets and superconducting magnets require uh, cooling with liquid helium which is only four degrees above absolute zero uh, and doing that in a great big circuit around a hundred kilometer tunnel is, is a real challenge and then the detectors have to uh, sim similarly be upgraded to face this new new level of energy and complexity um, so there are people now already starting to look at what would be required of the detectors. Um, it's an enormous project. If it goes ahead, the plan is to build first a, a machine that collides electrons and positrons, which is somewhat easier uh, to do, um, which would allow us to study the Higgs boson in enormous detail. And then to build uh, what's called a proton collider, so you take the nucleus of hydrogen atoms and collide those. That gives you access to much higher energies. Um, but it requires much more sophisticated magnets. So the first phase, if you said you, you, you had the money and the political decision to go ahead, it might take you 10 years to build the E plus E minus collider, um, and then you'd run that for a decade or two, and then you would think about replacing it with the proton collider. So the schedule for this project goes into the 2080s at the moment. <laughs> this is incredible. Long-term thinking, isn't it? It's nice to see, I think, compared to all the short-term thinking we've been seeing lately. It's, uh... Yeah, I, I'm, I'm chairing the Scientific Advisory Committee for this feasibility study. And um, it's, yes, it's, it's interesting to look at the technical challenges and how far you have to get, but it's also a little bit um, humbling to think that you're, you're going to be Looking at well, you're looking at a project that clearly will not produce its results uh, until long after I'm in my grave. So uh, <laughs> it's it's very much uh, supporting the next generation or two here. Well, that's the old adage about planting trees in which you'll never sit in the shade, isn't there? So, yeah, so yes, I think absolutely. The equivalent of that. Yeah, but somebody did this for for my generation. The Large Hadron Collider didn't mm. get built on a whim. Um, the tunnel was designed originally for a, another machine. Uh, and the designers of that machine thought ahead and thought one day somebody will want to upgrade this to, to do proton work and they designed the tunnel accordingly. Um, so it was our, my career was made possible by people who thought about it back in the 70s.
uh, and I guess it's my turn to do that for the next lot. And that's pretty much what we're doing in the Ray Dolby Centre and thinking about what might come next. Um, and we're not building an underground particle detector here in Cambridge, but we are building the next generation of physics facilities, um, research facilities. So let's go back to the Ray Dolby Centre and continue our tour uh, of the new building. Okay. So now we're on the third floor and we're in the canteen. And again, we have the glazed windows angled to the north so that the Top direct the sunlight doesn't make this into a greenhouse. Um, and we're looking out of a massive window towards the centre of town and we're high enough that we can see directly over the computer laboratory. We have a very nice view on the rest of Cambridge and the old church. We can see King's College Chapel there and the University Library. Um, and in front of us is the computer laboratory. And then if we go around to the south side, there's the balcony. And we're looking out towards the uh, Physics and Medicine building and the Maxwell Centre, which are part of physics, and of course, almost directly opposite our entrance. And the Shared Facilities Hub. And we can see the, the uh, builders are clearing the ground now for the uh, garden that's going to lie between our entrance ramp and the Shared Facilities Hub. So our staff will be able to go out to this, um, to the hub where there's uh, food and drink and a little bar and coffee and also some uh, extra seminar rooms and facilities like that. Uh, and obviously the building was called, it's called the Ray Dolby Centre. What's the connection with Dolby and so Ray, Ray Dolby did his PhD here working on electron microscopy and using it to characterise the surfaces of materials. Um, and of course he went on to found the famous Dolby Audio business, uh, which is on more or less every electronic device on the planet now. Um, so he left a very generous legacy in his will. And we've been working with the family since the beginning of the project to, uh, to design the building and they've, um, in addition to £75 million of capital for the uh, construction of the building, they've also funded a new professor and a research group in, in Ray's honour. So we would not have been able to build a building on this scale without their help. So obviously now we're building the, the state-of-the-art building uh, with the with top-edge uh, capabilities, but we also need to um, attract and fill it in with the best um, people to do the research, I guess. Yes, uh, obviously we have very good researchers and we attract excellent PhD students from around the world. Um, but you need, uh, first you need such facilities in order to do that. You can't continue doing state-of-the-art physics with old uh, equipment and old facilities because they're just not capable of delivering the performance needed in terms of things like vibration and temperature control and so on, which is just essential for the experiments. Um, but having done that, yes, we are working very hard now to attract new people. And again, the Dolby family have stepped in to help us, um, as have some other donors, uh, the PC Ho Family Foundation as well. So we've had donations towards PhD students, um, but the major one is from the Dolby family where they have uh, recently given us money for six, to support six professors, each supported by a postdoctoral researcher and two PhD students. So that's half a dozen fellowships, a dozen PhD students and a dozen um, 
principal investigators, all supported by the Dolby Family Fund uh, for excellence in physics. And that will be transformational for the lab. Um, I think if, if we want now to attract a world-class researcher and we can show them this building, we can show them the equipment that we have, and we can show them the level of support that we can give in terms of junior staff and PhD students, we will be competitive with anywhere in the world. And also the technicians. Um... Absolutely. We are reorganising our technician workforce around these new grouped facilities. Um, and that will be very good for them because uh, they will no longer be working in isolation. They will be part of a team with world-class equipment and they will be working with multiple research groups to deliver top-class science. So they will have um, more interesting jobs in the sense that there will be more variety. They will have more possibilities for collaboration with other people and for improving their skills and moving up the career ladder. So I think the whole ethos of the place will be very different for the technical staff as well. And we hope that they will, they, they seem to be very supportive of these moves. So you were saying that the Cavendish is as much about brick and mortar as it is about people, and it's true. Uh, such a big building is of no use without its researchers, technicians, students and professional staff. And that's the job of head of departments too, to find and attract the creme de la creme in physics. Uh, was that what you were expecting when you took on the role ten years ago? Uh, I must confess, I had absolutely no idea what to expect when I took on the role <laughs> ten years ago. That's why you signed up for it. Um, yes, uh, it was a very different world then. We had uh, some ideas about rebuilding the laboratory because it was clearly these buildings are well past their sell-by date and um, we needed a refresh. Uh, but how to go about it wasn't clear at all. Um, but yes, we've been very lucky that we've had the resources uh, to build a really state-of-the-art building. And that's the, the foundation, really, for everything else, because you cannot attract international talent if you tell them that you're going to put them in a broom cupboard in, with a leaky roof. Um, and you can't attract international talent if you can't say that we have the capabilities to do the sort of experiments that you want to do. There's no point really in being um, second in line doing experiments that people have already done. If you want to make discoveries or push the field forward, you have to be in some area that is unique and where you're leading. And Cambridge aspires to lead in, in whatever it does, and we do in physics. So you need all of the capabilities. So the building is the foundation. Then in, in that, you put the best technical capability in terms of equipment, um, measuring devices, the ability to reach very low temperatures, the ability to reach very high sensitivity. Um, and then with that in place, you need the technical staff who can keep that all going. Um, and that's very skilled. It's much underestimated that the public imagines some uh, professor at his bench who, <laughs> who knows and deals with every single piece of equipment that's there, but actually it's a team effort and uh, keeping a, a state-of-the-art piece of equipment going requires technicians who know what they're doing. Calling them technicians isn't even really doing them justice. They're, they're instrument scientists or, um, uh, or um, what would I call them, uh, builders and enablers of experiments. 
very often they, they do the designs of things that we have to make bespoke um, and they operate things and they have years and years of experience of how to make get the best out of these classes of apparatus. Then you need the, the students and young early career researchers to come and we always, we're very lucky here, we attract excellent students and we have a large number of postdoctoral fellows and so on. These are people who are aiming to either go into an academic career or industrial career and they're learning the techniques and very often leading their own experiments. And then finally, of course, you need the academic staff um, to, to be what we call the principal investigators who, who set the scene. But those principal investigators are usually uh, managing the experiments and doing the vision of what we're going to do next and guiding the others, whereas at the bench you will usually find a PhD student or a postdoc who is hands-on with the equipment. Um, and of course it's a big operation. We, uh, we spend probably £30 million a year on uh, science, uh, not counting the, that's just the research budget, not the budget for keeping the buildings going and so on. Um, um, we have uh, getting on for a thousand people working in the department so we also have a dedicated professional services staff who keep us all all going make sure the bills are paid and that we follow the law and that uh, <laughs> all of those sort of things that you have to do to be a proper proper organization so it's a very big effort and I had no concept when I stepped into the head of the department's office of what I was getting into uh, <laughs> but it's turned out okay I think uh, I could have done worse <laughs> I think you mentioned you'd uh, managed to raise £248 million towards uh, renovating the department and uh, yeah, developing new physics. So I think that's quite the achievement for... Uh... That, yes, I, was very, I must say I was very lucky with that. Um, the, uh, the legacy from Ray Dolby, of course, is a major part of that. Uh, but we are, and the government um, put in a lot. Uh, but we are very grateful to all the donors who... Who contribute and it makes a huge difference. Um, the, the smaller donations which support PhD students or uh, even um, the ones that allow them to go to conferences or mm. give them uh, money which we can deploy on the more expensive experiments is all incredibly helpful to the operation because uh, I don't want to be um, down on, on the UK funding system. Uh, <laughs> but it is of course you know, it's public money and it's very highly scrutinised and there are committees commit who have to um, deploy it and they tend to be a little bit conservative because they don't want to waste the taxpayers' money on things that are not going to work. Um, and we like to be uh, very much at the cutting edge and you take risks at the cutting edge. There's always um, a significant chance that what you plan will not pan out the way you expect if you're pushing into the unknown. So our external funders and donations give us that ability to uh, say, yes, we will do this experiment, even though um, you know, we don't know, where we, we don't know whether it's going to work or not. Uh, and that's, I mean, science is, is all about exploration. Sometimes people think it's kind of inviting, inventing a better light bulb, that you're looking at some piece of technology and trying to incrementally improve it. But that's not what we're about at all. We're about finding out what nature can do um, and to do that you're looking in places where nobody has looked before and if you know what nature can do then you can develop technologies using that knowledge but there's a famous um, uh, quote which is that you don't design a light bulb by doing R&D on a candle <laughs> uh, you can't just incrementally improve things mm. and expect to get somewhere new you have to look in places you've never looked and understand things you've never understood 
thinking our earlier chat you described it as uh, like seeing clockwork and knowing there was a missing spring somewhere that's <laughs> that's then you know, sort of what sets physicists off yes that's right if you can see that your your picture of how the universe works and your equations are not consistent then you know that there is something out the nature's got something that you haven't yet discovered it's hiding somewhere and then you try and push the experiments to reveal what is what is yet to be found um, and and that's really the basis of technology you know in if you were in a society with horsepower and candles you can't even conceive of electronics first you have to discover the electron then you have to work out how it operates and what the equations are and then you have to discover that it's linked to magnetism and only after you've done that can you build a radio and you probably have to develop some technology to initially make valves work that was all unknown and then now we have transistors and so you end up with being able to do a podcast but that, you wouldn't have done that by saying I need a better candle uh, these horse-drawn vehicles I can do better on the bearings and make them slightly more efficient right you have to do something completely different so if all things continue to go to plan the Ray Dolby Center is set to open in 2024 but you're stepping down in September this year. So mm -hmm. how do you feel about taking this all the way to the finish line and moving on just as you cross <laughs> over it? I think it's a great relief. Um, <laughs> I've done 10 years uh, and uh, it's a hard slog. I mean, these projects look great when they're finished. They're very glamorous, great big uh, building, but uh, day to day, it's constantly solving problems with people and money and spreadsheets and plans and things not going quite as you expected so it's hard work um, and I'm very pleased to have got it to the finish line and I shall be delighted to watch all the stuff that will develop from it but I think it's time for me to step back and let somebody else take the reins and I'm sure Mete will do a fantastic job. Mete Atatouri, yeah, that is um, currently the deputy head That's of That's right, he'll um, be taking department. over in September and I'm, I'm gradually giving him more things to, to do. <laughs> Uh, but hopefully not in a way that's going to um, horrify him. So, yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's kind of satisfying to have got it to this point. We're, we're su I'm supposed to step down at the end of September, and we're supposed to take possession of the building in November, so it's pretty close to the finish line now. Um, and all the funding and so on is in place, so uh, I think, you know, it, it will get there. It doesn't need me anymore, and so I should wander off into the sunset. <laughs> on your deck, on the on the uh, balcony. Ah, yes, yes. On there is the chair. there is a lovely balcony up there, and uh, uh, I could sit happily there in my deck chair, drinking coffee and watching all the young <laughs> folk do their stuff. That would be good fun. Has it been officially earmarked for that? Emeritus <laughs> heads of department. I haven't managed to get that yet, but. Uh, <laughs> Yes, it would be nice nice to, to hang around the canteen and hear how everybody's getting on. <laughs> and related to that, actually, uh, so what uh, areas of physics are you most excited to see happening in the new Dolby Centre and uh, elsewhere and the collaborations going on in the department? Hmm. Well, of course, I have a soft spot for my own area, which is particle physics. Um, and the LHC, as I said, will be keeping on running and producing good stuff. Uh, and that kind of links very much to the astro. Um, the astro side uh, so we have a, an outstanding program on life in the universe looking for exoplanets and, and life on other planets and I, I think that would be a, a vast uh, discovery for the public if, mm. if we were able to say we're certain that there is life on another planet so that one's very exciting um, 
in the Ray Dolby Centre, of course, we've devoted a lot of time to the basement area for the quantum optics people and the developments in quantum uh, physics and quantum technology are amazing. Um, so I'm very much looking forward to seeing what comes out of there. Uh, you're looking at new detectors which are vastly more sensitive than anything we've had before, new types of computer that can solve problems that have, have baffled us for years, um, and just very cool stuff that uh, <laughs> used to be thought experiments but can now be done in real life with particles being in two places at the same time and that kind of thing. Uh, so I'm very fond of that bit. Um, and then I think uh, the whole area of, um, of solid-state physics has moved on enormously from us looking at sort of bulk materials and saying this is an interesting material, it does something strange compared to other stuff to really understanding it all at the atomic level and being able to design materials for specific purposes. And I think that's very exciting, especially with the energy transition. We need new materials mm -hmm. to do better solar panels, uh, to do turbine blades that can be so enormous and so strong and yet light and flexible and so on. So our ability to understand materials at the fundamental level and say, we want these properties, let's go and make them for batteries or whatever it may be uh, is another great great area so I think actually I don't think there's anything that I've looked at which is going into the Ray Dolby Center where you don't think well this is amazing this is <laughs> this is really great stuff but that's a, a physicist speaking <laughs> lovely well thank you very much for talking to us yeah thank you Andy for your time today pleasure Thanks to Andy Parker and the team at the Ray Dolby Centre for today's episode, which has been recorded and edited by Chris Brock. Check the show notes for details of what has been discussed in this episode. And if you'd like to learn more about our work at the Cavendish Lab, please go to www.phy.cam.ac.uk. Thanks for listening to People Doing Physics. If you like the podcast, please subscribe and leave us a review. It really helps others to find the show. Do you have any pressing questions you would like our physicists to answer? Send us an email or contact us on Twitter using the hashtag PeopleDoingPhysics. We'll be back next month. Until then, take care. Mm -hmm.